0: Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hokely. I'm in Sao Paulo. George Hoare is in London. Philip Cunliffe is in Canterbury. Hi, guys. Hey, Hey. what's up? And today we are joined by Kritika Varagur. Uh, Let me just introduce her before I ask her to say hi as well. Uh, She's a journalist, a foreign correspondent uh, until very recently, and author of The Call. Uh she is focused on religion and politics in Southeast and South Asia in her reporting. Um, and today we're specifically talking to her about her book, The Call, uh, about Saudi religious influence across the world. So hi, Kritika, very happy to have you join us.
1: Hi, guys. Great to join the pod.
0: Yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to, to talking uh, about this book, and we haven't really done anything specifically on religion in in, in quite a long time, uh, and also haven't really done anything about any of the Gulf states. So it's good to be talking about Saudi Arabia specifically. But actually, we're not going to start in Saudi Arabia, we're going to start in Indonesia, which is where you start your book. Uh, That's where your story begins. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your time there just to get us started.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to Indonesia when I was 22 um, in 2016. And I've lived there on and off up until March of this year. Um, And it's where I spent the majority of my time as a foreign correspondent for a bunch of places, including The Guardian. Um, I moved there with a one-way plane ticket because I wanted to write about religion and politics. And Indonesia was part of Asia. It was also part of the Muslim world. It was the world's largest Muslim-majority country. Um, And it had a lot of interesting things going on also with environmentalism and rainforests and all kinds of things like that. So I just had a (laughs) good feeling about it, I guess. And I moved there and I loved it as soon as I got there. It was so interesting. Um, and I kind of dove headfirst first into reporting, um, those things as soon as I got there. Um, it turned out to be a kind of banner year for Islamist politics in Indonesia. Right when I moved there, there was a really big kind of like mass, Grassroots Islamist protest movement that happened as soon as I got there. There was a big blasphemy trial, um, and there were also several kind of discreet instances of terrorism in the year or two after I moved there. So there was just a lot of stuff happening, right. um, and and you know it 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 was uh, it kind of confounded a lot of received wisdom we have about what a post-colonial country is like or what a democracy is like today. It's a huge democracy, but it has gotten only more religious and its public sphere has only gotten more religious with had time. You,
2: How you do you mean confounded what we expected?
1: Well, I guess, uh, I guess you know, uh, I had to certainly internalized this kind of secularization idea that as a country became more democratic, it would become more liberal, pluralistic, and secular, and none of those things were necessarily true in Indonesia. Um, it's become more and more religious since uh, the fall of the Suharto dictatorship in 98. So religion's been a really important part of their democratic process, and that has been really interesting to report on.
0: And it's interesting because uh, one of our recent episodes, actually episode 121 for listeners who want to check it out, it uh, starts discuss- with a discussion on Indonesia, specifically the, the massacre of, of 65 and 66. Uh, and we didn't really discuss Indonesia, anything uh, more recent about the country there. Uh, but I mean, one thing which I noted uh, in, in that discussion about Indonesian politics in the mid 60s was that it seemed that Muslims were or Muslim groups were on the right of Indonesian politics. That, you know, you had the communists on the left and you had the kind of secular nationalists and then you had um, kind of Muslim groups in, groupings mainly forming uh, the Indonesian right along with the military and so on. Um, is that still the case? I mean, is that it, it, or how does uh, Islam fit into, I guess, a kind of traditional left right political spectrum in Indonesia?
1: Yeah, that was a really great episode Um, with Vincent, who was a colleague during my time there. Um, and, well, the interesting thing now is that it's not really left-right charged at all. It's kind of in place across the political spectrum. Um, there, first of all, there is no left to speak of in Indonesia right now. It was really decimated by these anti-communist killings, and communist remains a very, very threatening um, scepter, specter uh, in, in, in Indonesia today. So there's no left or really even liberal party today. But the kind of more pluralistic party, which is in, in, um, power right now under the president, Joko Widodo. Um, you know, he's not shy about his Islamic credentials. Um, both of the candidates for president in last year's election flew to Mecca on private jets two days before the election to just prove that they're Islamic enough. Mm. Um, and so both sides, uh, you know, start their rallies with Islamic prayers and broadcast their credentials. The current vice president of Indonesia was the highest Muslim cleric in the country, and he's he's on the ostensibly more progressive ticket, right? So there's really it's really hard to pick out who's who, and it's mm. just kind of permeated both sides of the spectrum.
3: So why do, why do you think um, I guess Indonesia doesn't necessarily have the um, image internationally of being a of being a really Um, A country in which religion and politics are are fused. Um, Why do you think that is, I guess, compared to somewhere like Saudi Arabia, where these two things are much more synonymous in the kind of international image?
1: Yeah, I think Indonesia has a curiously small geopolitical blueprint. Um, Part of that is that it's not an Anglophone country. It was colonized by the Dutch instead of the British. So it doesn't really participate in English language media. There's not a whole lot of media coming out of there. And it also has a very kind of interesting and subtle foreign policy where it's not usually overstepping its bounds, even though it's the fourth largest country Mm -hmm. in the world. So it's not getting these big fights in the region for the most part. Um, So all of that, I think, leads to less um, newsprint inches. And that's part of the reason we don't really hear that much about Indonesia in the news unless it's like a volcano or some kind of, you know, awful terror attack or something like that.
2: Mm. So if we um, dig a bit into the history of it, which you talk about in in your book, um, there's the always, it always comes back to the question of Afghanistan. And how important the um, Mujahideen struggle was uh, against the Soviets in the 80s and for Salafism. It's a story that's, I'm sure it's a story that's familiar, but could you elaborate a bit on it and tell us a bit more about what you talk about in relation to Afghanistan in your book?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you picked up on that. So the US Saudi relationship you know, has gone back many decades, but one of the peaks of their cooperation was in the Soviet-Afghan war um, in the 1980s, where the U.S. and Saudi Arabia pledged dollar for dollar to support the Mujahideen, which are these Afghan guerrilla forces against, uh, against the Soviets. So it really became this cosmopolitan international jihad where foreign fighters Flew to Afghanistan from all around the Muslim world, including Indonesia. And, and the kind of guerrilla units there became this sort of breeding ground for Salafi jihadism. There's especially one very charismatic fighter named Abdullah Azam, who uh, was based in Peshawar and heavily supported by. Uh, the Saudis and was very kind of an indoctrinated Wahhabi and his ideological imprint was very strong. So when I moved to Indonesia, the very first story I did was with these, they called themselves Afghan alumni. They're um, people who fought in these guerrilla wars in Afghanistan and they found a very dense network and they, They really plugged into transnational Salafi jihadism, which they brought back to Indonesia after that war was over. And that led in the 90s and early 2000s to the rise of kind of Al-Qaeda affiliated Islamic terror, culminating most infamously in the Bali bombings of 2002. So it was really amazing. Did
2: did you interview? You interviewed some of these Afghan alumni? Yeah, yeah. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about uh, some of these the specific characters who you interviewed in Indonesia?
1: Yeah, a prominent one is this guy called Nasir Abbas. He was a Malaysian, now lives in Indonesia, works closely with the Indonesian government. He spent some time in Afghanistan, eventually became a prominent member of Jama'a Islamiyah, which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Southeast Asia, and he went on to start these uh, training camps for militants in the southern Philippines in the '90s. Um, so he's he did some jail time after the roundup, you know, the kind of mass roundup after the Bali bombings, and now it kind of works as a advisor to the Indonesian government. But it was really interesting to see how he just moved kind of seamlessly across national borders in the 80s and 90s, like uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, and kind of spreading these ideas um, of of Al-Qaeda so far from their origin.
2: Presumably, in agreeing to be interviewed by you, he had some interest or some message he was trying to get across. What was that out of interest?
1: I mean, he's definitely trying to rebrand um, because he's done his jail time, and it's it's hard to, you know, find a job if you're publicly identified <laughs> as an ex-terrorist. So he's been one of the more successful um people that come out of that and make a livelihood out of it. And he he does have some really interesting I- insights. And because he has this Malaysian background, he's able to speak in English, which is very helpful for him to get his message out as well. Mm-hmm. I've met some other, you know, ex-Majahideen who always speak Indonesian and they kind of live quiet lives. They're somewhat old now. They meet up at this mosque in Jakarta and kind of reminisce on these good old times. They all kind of joke that they were really bad fighters and they were just <laughs> in it for a good time. Um, oh, that's but, interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, I was just going to ask a little bit more about Indonesia and how the kind of Saudi influence manifests itself and how it relates to, I guess, I, I don't know if I want to say indigenous Islam, but kind of other traditions which maybe pre-exist the, the, the kind of influence of, of, uh, of Saudi Dawah there. So, you know, like you have and you make reference to this in the book, uh, kind of the separatist movements in Aceh and in northern Sumatra. Um, but then also at the same time, you have at the very other end of the Indonesian archipelago, uh, Saudi incursions and, and the attempt to send missionaries and set up schools and things like that in Papua. Um, which is a completely different part of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I wondered if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how the kind of Saudi influence relates to existing uh, Islamic groupings there, Islamic politics, uh, Muslim groups, and so on.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's often been like this foil against which Indonesian Islams have defined themselves for a very long time. Um, You know, what we would think of as traditional or traditionalist Indonesian Islam even from the very beginning of the 20th century, defined itself against kind of Wahhabism. So in the early 20th century, before Indonesia was even a country, this kind of mainstream group called Nahdlatul Latul Ulama, or NU, which, if anything, stands for the Indonesian established Sunni establishment, um, kind of formed in opposition to these perceived Wahhabi inroads, where people would go on hajj and bring these kind of puritanical ideas back to what was the Dutch East Indies, and they were very stressed out about um, the impact of this hardline Islam in their country, so they tried to organize themselves against it. So I think it's really interesting to note that it's always been this foil or this alternate thing against which Indonesian Muslims have defined themselves. Um, And in terms of the effects of Saudi Dawah, which um, is the thing that gives the name to my book, Dawah means the call to Islam. It's the name for all kinds of proselytization. It spread Salafism, which is this 20th century revivalist movement to return to the traditions of the earliest eighth century Islam. So it's created a very large grassroots base for that movement in Indonesia, across Indonesia, all kinds of islands. Um, It's also created this kind of mass intolerance of Muslim minorities like the Shia and the Ahmadiyya, which were really like non-existent uh, phenomena until 80s basically there were barely any people who would have identified as shia before the iranian revolution in indonesia at all and now there are so many anti-shias that there's a national anti-shia league in indonesia so this idea of picking out other kinds of muslims for persecution to me that's like a really concrete effect of saudi Dawah.
0: and that's something that comes through very clearly throughout the book um And I think we want to talk about some of your other case studies, and maybe actually for the sake of, uh, for listeners' sake, uh, who aren't familiar with the book, uh, I should say that, you know, it does cover three different major case studies, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Kosovo, Um, but it also talks a lot about... What Saudi Dawah actually is. Maybe we should take this opportunity, uh, if you could, to tell us a little bit more about what um, what Saudi religious thought is like and maybe tell us who Bin Baz is, because he's a character who appears uh, quite frequently and and is quite an influential um, Islamic scholar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Wahhabism is the state religion of Saudi Arabia. It started in the late 18th century there by this desert preacher named Muhammad ibn Abdel Wahhab, who was very much against a lot of the practices he saw around him that Muslims he thought were deviating from what Islam was really all about. So These include like worshipping at shrines, kind of folk practices like singing and worshipping saints and so on. Um, so he had this very puritanical streak and uh, made a, a pact with the Saudi royal family back in the 18th century that if they supported his very austere version of Islam, which he spread through you know conquest and killing and so on with these militia, then he would provide religious legitimacy for their royal family to found the Saudi state. And that pact remains in place up until today. Um, So Wahhabism is the state religion of Saudi Arabia. Um, And Saudi Arabia, as we know it today, only became a country in 1932. It was the third and most successful attempt of the Saudi royal family to create a country on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, But they didn't really have this global ambitions until the 1960s. That was when King Faisal became the monarch, and he was a globally minded guy. Um, he, He came of age... Or he came to the global stage during a time when there were really big contests in the third world for what the future was going to look like. Right. Because after the world wars, uh, it was like, you know, there were so many new post-colonial nation states, um, and they were trying to figure out what their countries would look like. A lot of them had these kind of liberal pluralist projects, from India to Indonesia to even something like Nasser's Egypt, um, where they would found their countries on something other or more than just religious piety. Um, So it was into this world that King Faisal thought he could stake a claim for himself and his country. Um, And Saudi Arabia luckily was the birthplace of Islam. So they already had this big Trump card in their pocket. Um, So he pioneered this foreign policy based on Islamic solidarity. And um, he started doing a lot of outreach to all these new Muslim majority countries From Indonesia all the way to Nigeria Um, and he kind of created this cosmopolitan world of like these big charities like the Muslim World League these big organizations like the OIC um, and these universities like this big Islamic University Medina that were all supposed to kind of project Saudi as the center of the Muslim world where Muslims from all over the world could come and partake in this new Global transnational uh, Muslim identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: so just so to she, jump in, sorry, because I think it would be yeah, nice to ahead. transition now to the question of well maybe move to a, a historical period the latter bit of the Cold War uh, where the Saudis obviously allied themselves to US power um, and they're an important sort of anti-communist or, or counter to, to communism and this is clear I think in in Africa so when you're discussing Nigeria you you mentioned how uh, because communism wasn't as strong in sub-saharan Africa at least relative to to kind of Arab uh-huh. North Africa uh, the Saudis targeted that region and, and had some success so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that process.
1: Yeah, they were really strategic in the early years of this project. Um, they were definitely active in a lot of places where there were kind of anti-communist battles being fought. It was a time of, of which uh, Kissinger once wrote in his memoirs, he would always find a helpful Saudi footprint in a lot of theaters that mm. America wanted to get rid of communists. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but with Nigeria specifically, um, where the outreach started in 1965, it was singled out precisely because it wasn't such a hotbed of you know communist activity or stuff like that. It seemed a little bit more like a low-hanging fruit. There already were a lot of Muslims there, especially northern Nigeria. And um, there had been a lot of ties between African scholars and Saudi. So they thought it would be a great starting point to start to give these scholarships. Um, I mean, at this time, it it wasn't just Saudi was trying this, like Nasser's Egypt was also trying to build goodwill in Nigeria at this time. But after the Arab-Israeli war, they were no longer really players.
0: You never uh, hear something about Henry Kissinger, which doesn't make you feel like, oh well, he's an even worse person than than I thought he was
1: before.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's per, perpetually whenever he's trending on Twitter, people are like, is he is he dead yet? What's what's going back, on? But, yeah. is he dead yet? Yeah. Um,
2: Phil, so like one question, one question. Yeah. yeah, one question I wanted to pick up was, um, I don't, I'm not sure if this is if this is a kind of conclusion that you wanted to put across, but it seems to suggested itself from uh, from the discussion in your book that in a way kind of peak um, peak Saudi soft power or peak Saudi influence seems to all be in the aftermath of their effective victory in Afghanistan at the end of the Cold War. It yeah. seems to be in the 1990s and before what happens with 9-11 when um, they come under such scrutiny without, without um, many... Um, Without particularly, um, you know, bad implications for them. But nonetheless, there's a lot more scrutiny of Saudi Islamism, of Saudi support for jihadism after the terror attacks of 2001. So I wonder if we're already kind of living in a post-peak world in terms of um, Saudi Islamism or Saudi Wahhabism and its influence in the world Is that pushing the argument too far, or would you concur? No, 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 I
1: completely concur. It's definitely peaked. I mean, I think I even wrote my book, Peak dawah was from 1973 to 1990. I mean, it started tapering off after the Gulf War, but 9-11, you can't overstate how much of a game-changer that was. It was, you know, devastating for the kingdom's image. Every single person I talked to in all three countries in this book talked about this drop-off in funds after 2001, like, People are really. I mean, the world started training its like financial action task force or whatever on so, Saudi. Sorry, just to jump
0: overseas. in, just because I mean, it's interesting because Phil kind of was relatively downplaying, and you're saying there you can't downplay it that it was very significant. I mean, do yeah. you think that maybe just went a little bit more underground that they had other routes for that money to to reach their destination, or do you think it actually did have a have an actual material effect?
1: I, I think it had a material effect. I think that there you know in the 90s they were very openly there is, Saudi charities were very openly supporting al-Qaeda affiliates in the Balkans Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines i mean that 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 was that kind of thing I don't think is going to happen again. It was pretty outrageous what some of the charities got away with. And I think it wasn't just 9-11, right? Like in 2003 and 2004, Al-Qaeda bombed targets in Saudi. So their problem came home to them and they really had to start taking it seriously. So I, I think it's really important to know that the, the nature of the campaign itself has changed, even though by that time, after three decades, some of these like Salafi communities abroad didn't really need external funding anymore, but that's a different story. In terms of active Saudi outflows, I think it, it, it seriously did change in 2001. And that's why I think it's important, like even today you see a lot of people stateside or in, in the West in general p- putting forth Saudi money as the cause of all Islamic terrorism or fundamentalism in the world. And to me that uh, that doesn't really scan.
2: Oh, it's interesting. But so would you be able to tie it in to what's happening in Syria um, and Saudi support for um, jihadi militias, al Qaeda affiliated militias, and various factions in the Syrian civil war trying to overthrow the um, Baathist regime there? So, so how does def- that fit in the overall picture?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm definitely not an expert on Syria. It's such a complex situation. But I do think that um, because there's it's such a multi-party war there that it has to kind of be looked at as, as, as its own thing. And in terms of the scope of my book, which is the greater Muslim world, so not in Saudi's backyard, I think the Dawah campaign has changed. But in terms of kind of proxy wars and it's, considerable commitments within the middle east um i think that you have to look at each of them case by case and you know the so-called saudi iranian proxy war which yeah. is often thrown around a lot i don't think is a really important dynamic in much of the greater muslim world in asia and africa but it is very important still in the middle east so i think those you know those cases are still relevant to look at those dynamics
2: But say, um, so, I mean, I take your point. I suppose the only thing I would push you a bit on, say, um, I mean, you know, Saudi essentially has already lost the war in Yemen um, for all of the, like you mentioned, for all of the um, US weaponry that they buy and their enormous military budget. They seem to be unable to um, suppress an insurrection in a neighboring, much poorer country. And also, effectively, the Ba'athist regime is entrenched in Syria. It seems like Saudi will have to live with and accommodate themselves to the Ba'athist regime. So if we take those as serious geopolitical defeats for the Saudi regime, mm-hmm. on top of, um, say, what's happening in the oil market at the moment, how do you think that might affect the way they play um? Dawa, as you say, as how do they play their soft power? How does that affect their stature in the wider Muslim world? Will they maybe be pushed into doing more soft power as a result of geopolitical setbacks in their region? Um, I mean, you know, just some thoughts, how you, yeah, yeah, what yeah. you feel is.
1: No, they're, they're all totally linked, I think. I think if they, they quote-unquote lose those two conflicts that you mentioned, which it does seem like it's going that way, it would accelerate this trend of Saudi Arabia's steep decline in prestige within the Islamic world, um, which we've already been seeing since 9-11. Um, and it's seen on so many fronts. It's really like a multipolar world now. It, I mean, they're not going to be able to make the same kind of bid for transnational leadership that they once had in the 20th century. Um, you know, even the Hajj, which is one of the five pillars of Islam, certain Islamists have started criticizing the Hajj itself and calling on Muslims to boycott the Hajj because of the war in Yemen, which if you think about it, what a wow. serious yeah. statement that is, yeah. um, you know, talking about people in Libya and Tunisia, um, and even someone like Ilhan Omar has made statements to that effect in the past. That's such a serious statement that it really shows how there's really no sacred cow anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Saudi Arabia is and always will be the birthplace of Islam, and the royal title of their king is custodian of the two holy mosques. So that's mm-hmm. there. It's always going to be there. But you know, their soft power is, is quite different. Um, and you're starting to see Vision 2030 um, branding show up in some of their Dawah outposts abroad. Like the Saudi University in Jakarta is absolutely carpeted. In vision 2030 banners uh, they started hiring some women professors the last time i went there so even if these things are cosmetic i, I think we're starting to see some changes afoot um, and i also think in terms of soft power mbs at least as long as he gets to stay in power is not trying to foreground religion as part of his you know his hopes and dreams for saudi arabia i'm sure you guys know about neom that city he's trying to build in the desert yeah the new yeah. jurassic park and stuff um
3: (laughs) how's that how's that going
1: i mean there's they're running flights to there now as far as i can tell i don't know what's there um it's on track to being (laughs) filled um and they're really trying to push other like jason derulo went to saudi arabia like i'm sure you saw that kind of influencer month when a lot of random people went there i mean they're really trying to push yeah. other things about saudi right now so i think as long as he is still holding as much power as he does they're going to try to change the public image of saudi arabia to include all these other things that are not really religious in nature
3: mm, that's interesting i mean like when a fire festival the place in the middle of nowhere brings <laughs> some influences what could possibly
2: go wrong
1: i'm uh, so excited to see how it turns out <laughs>
2: So one example that we wanted to ask about as well to pick up on one of the case studies you go with is the um, what happens in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that it's connected to you mentioned it's connected to um, the background of the Cold War. And so that the Saudis were able to penetrate areas of Africa in which um, communist influence was um, less and so that this um, began in the Cold War, but in northern Nigeria in particular in Izala, took off in the mid 90s. Um, and that this was this involved the same kind of uh, movement that you talk about, the um, suppression of kind of local uh, indigenous Islamic practices, particular local Sufi cults um, to a new more internationalized, um standardized Islamic product. Could you tell us a little bit about um the Saudis in Nigeria in the mid-90s? Um yeah,
1: it's it's so interesting what happened there. It's really that was really like a good example to me of opening this can of worms and the effects became so unpredictable. So you know they started their outreach pretty modestly in the 60s with these scholarships to Medina and they created this very successfully created a, an influential class of Salafi clerics mm-hmm. in Northern Nigeria who, who were called Izala. They were, uh, they came up in the seventies. They built a ton of mosques. They were very combative, um, displacing these old Sufi orders who, while the Sufis, um, had a lot of grassroots support, they were also very deeply hierarchical and had these kind of entrenched, uh, authority structures. So when the Salafism came and promised this more kind of democratic, even if it was more combative, uh, alternative, a lot of people saw something they liked in that because they were like, you don't need to listen to these Sufi shakes. You're just as good as anyone else. You can read the same books as us. You know, we're all on the same page here. So that democratic aspect was super appealing. So Salafism really took off in northern Nigeria. And today it's a very important part of the religious landscape. Salafis are Mm -hmm. super influential there. Um, But what happened there was that it kept breaking off and breaking off into these smaller and smaller but more extreme um, units. So Izala, which is the- Northern Islam-
2: evangelical evangelical is the typical pattern.
1: Yeah, exactly. It just kind of spun out of control. So Izala became Ahl Sunnah. Ahl Sunnah eventually, uh, you know, one of its members broke off and created Boko Haram, which Boko Haram was not always a violent jihadist organization. It kind of was an extreme Salafi organization for several years until its leader was assassinated. And then it took a violent turn and then became this really, really awful- jihadist um, threat responsible for so many kidnappings and, um, and killings in the region today. But that is, you know, I don't think Saudi Arabia saw that coming. I don't think they planned for it. At the same time, you see this in so many countries where once you create this large base of Salafis, this fringe often gets radicalized and ends up um, Mm. joining some kind of movement like this.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, these unstable byproducts, as you call them, you know, of Saudi Dawa, um, which, you know, leads, as you said, in, in Nigeria to conflicts between Boko Haram and other Salafi groups, um, to the extent that Boko Haram become allied with ISIS instead of the Saudis as of 2015. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, how generalizable do you think this is that, you know, the Saudi influence ends up well, on one hand, deliberately trying to create intra-Muslim strife insofar as it wants to uh, challenge uh, both Shiite influence as well as, uh, you know, kind of marginalize Uh, Sufis and other minorities, but it even ends up creating intra-Sunni, intra-Salafi strife in in some cases. I mean, is there a way that they operate which leads that to happen, or um, is it just completely accidental, or is it just because is it just in the nature of kind of ideological warfare that things will splinter off in random directions and you'll have unforeseen eventualities?
1: Uh, I think it's a it's a mix of factors, and definitely the last one is important. But I think that you know, the heart of Wahhabism is takfir. it's this idea of excommunicating people who are not part of, who are not in the exact same strain as you. And I think that taqfiri, uh mindset, which did spread across so many countries, because of the Saudi campaign, inevitably leads to these kinds of fractions. Because if the whole, if the, if the, You know, if one of the main tenets that you believe in is that people who are wrong kind of Muslims can be excommunicated, it's going to be important to root out those kinds of Muslims. So I think these conflicts are not an accident. Um, They're kind of when you have an ideology that's so uncompromising, it's kind of something that just that is bound to happen. Um, I really like one of the New York Times. uh, Scott Shane wrote a great article a few years ago for The New York Times calling Saudis both the arsonists and the firefighters. Um, in the war against, it's a good Israel.
3: line. Yeah.
1: yeah, just I think is a really good. It's perfect. They want to fight ISIS. Saudi Arabia wants to quash ISIS, but ISIS used Saudi textbooks in their schools, famously.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I also wondered how you know, in terms of the recipients of of aid and and charity from the Saudis, uh, what. I mean, I guess through your interviews, did you find that people were maybe a bit opportunistic with it, thinking, well, you know, I'm getting a decent education out of this, or uh, if, if you're a teacher, perhaps, um, or someone organizing a school will think, you know, I'm just going to take this money and and uh, and run with it, as it were, you know, at, at least put it to good use, and I'm not too interested in actually. Uh, seeing through the Saudis, you know, desires for proselytization, you know, was there kind of an opportunistic relationship in, in some cases between the kind of client and the Saudis or how, how does yeah, that relationship work? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, look, people are smart, right? Like, that's the main thing I try to get across in the, like, I, I whenever we talk about Saudi influence, it's not like they're being brainwashed. Um, so I think in every country I went to, there were plenty of opportunistic people who just wanted to take Saudi charity or scholarships. and That's why both in Kosovo and Indonesia, two of the prominent people I, um, I talked to are liberal Islamic scholars who studied in, in Saudi universities and hated it. But they were like, I got a free education, but I realized that's not for me. So there's always the possibility of rejecting, hmm. you know, certain parts of the ideology. But, but in, the, I in, think, terms
0: of, in terms of the quality of the education received in a place in, for example, in, in a town in northern Nigeria, you know, I mean, is that d- does what the Saudis offer or the Saudis uh, sponsored schools offer? Uh, is it somehow better than the Western, you know, the Boko Haram, the forbidden Western education?
1: Right. Uh, I think the quality fluctuates wildly i would say that the, the extremely salafi schools definitely in indonesia are not the best academically but oftentimes it's better than no school um but you know like the salafi and saudi supported schools i went to in, in indonesia are like very very bare bones um right uh, and, yeah, but i i think the 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 question is not like whether it's a great you know education but whether it's an education at all um, and I think in Nigeria there's a huge di- like disparity between the different kinds of schools that were supported by the Muslim World League. But I think again, Northern Nigeria has really low developmental markers, so it's often the difference between any school and no school.
3: Right. right. Hmm. So just to I guess move on to the third um, case study, which you draw on Kosovo. Um, I guess the, the general question is what you know what what does it add to the historical narrative um to the argument but also a kind of I guess um something which which comes through is that there's a there's a generational aspect here right Mm -hmm. with the sons of atheists the sons of communists rejecting secularism and Mm -hmm. embracing religion
1: yeah I really wanted to do a case study in Europe and obviously in Europe the kind of post-colonial aspect of Nigeria and Indonesia was not going to be there so you know that's it. it was a little bit of a different situation. But nevertheless, I thought that the fall of Yugoslavia was a really interesting kind of historical moment in Europe because a lot of European Muslims were affected by that. And a lot of Saudi charities went directly from the Afghan jihad into Bosnia, into Kosovo. So I thought this kind of movement was so interesting and I was really interested to see what the fallout of that was. Um, So just really quick for the listeners, um, Saudi charity came to Kosovo starting in December 98 and then continued um, through the end of the war into Kosovo independence, right up until Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008. And Saudi charities really helped, you know, obviously, America and NATO helped Kosovo become an independent Mm country, but the UN interim administration and the US were not like super interested in rebuilding the religious life of this country that is like 98% Muslim. Um, Mm -hmm. And not just is Muslim, had been somewhat traumatized specifically in religious sense because like people had been, you know, Serb forces had used minarets for target practice, had targeted their Imams for murder, um, and otherwise you know, their religious life was suppressed under a communist regime. so it's it was kind of like a wide open playing field for a country like Saudi Arabia to come and attend yeah. to this at all,
3: yeah, I was actually just about to to ask, you know is was there a was there a vacuum there? Did that make it sort of strategically more appealing, I guess?
1: yeah, totally. And it was a different kind of Islam than had typically been in this part of the Balkans like Salafism was completely almost completely unknown to the Balkans at that point but it was You know, in a war, in a post-war country, like, totally rebuilding from scratch, um, often, like, Saudi-supported imams were the only people who you could find to lead prayers, and Saudi charities were the only people, and Gulf charities were the only people even trying to rebuild mosques. So it's no surprise that when this very modest religious revival came about in Kosovo, it had this very strong, like, Saudi salafi flavor.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the material kind of infrastructure, the the okay. resources required. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: I, won- I wonder if I wanted to probe a little on this one is um, if there are any kind of uh, distinctions, I suppose, between um, Kosovo's political elites and uh, wider society. I remember when Kosovo declared its independence in 2008, there were pictures um, in the international press of Kosovo's parliamentarians Mm -hmm. um, swilling champagne, you know, quite openly (laughs) and um, unashamedly. And they're also very, I mean, as you'd expect, they're very attuned to to Brussels and to Washington. Mm -hmm. And so they're very, you know, they're Very um, self-conscious about maintaining their Western credentials and their bona fides in order to ensure the future trajectory that they envisage for an independent Kosovo. How does that tie into um, uh, support for Salafism outside of the political elite?
1: Um, I mean, it's a great question. The political elites in Kosovo, um, and by the way, Kosovo is like mostly ethnic Albanians, are very secular. And there's such a strong secular tradition among Albanians, both in Albania and in Kosovo. And it's such a secular country today that like you're not even allowed to wear hijabs in government jobs there. So there's like a pretty stark divide between some of this grassroots revival and the official state rhetoric. And yeah, as you pointed out, they're very, very keen to join Europe and be considered Europeans and their statehood is very contested today. It's not universally recognized and Kosovar passports don't get you very far. Um, but I, it is interesting. Even the Salafis I met there are very keen to be identified as European Salafis and mm. they all shook my hands and right. they bragged about going to London to give sermons to the Albanians there and things like that. So
2: interesting. Yeah.
1: they are very much, you know, they don't, I don't think anyone even really sees it as much of a um, of a conflict. They think we're European Um I think that the one divide you do see is that as much as Kosovar elites want to be part of Europe, and Kosov in Kosovars in general, many of them want to so bad to be part of the EU. It would give them so many benefits. Um, they're not able to travel almost anywhere legally. So one reason this kind of Syrian war slash ISIS Um, phenomenon had such a pull on some of the young people there is because they had no prospects like unemployment is so high Um, they can't get jobs in or outside the country and Turkey is one of the only countries they could go to freely with their passport so that's one of those places where like the material conditions really aggravated this kind of small Salafi revival
0: interesting and I think maybe we should move forward a bit in time because towards the end of the book you uh Kind of draw a little bit of a distinction between, I mean, I guess what we mentioned here as kind of peak dawah, you know, the 90s and maybe even in the period after 9 11 to a certain extent, whereas now things are starting to change. So maybe it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to kind of paint the character of that, because I, I think most outside observers weren't really familiar with what Saudi Arabia is like, what Saudi Arabia as a state does, what its foreign policy is exactly like. Uh, would just assume a certain a bit of continuity, or would see uh, MBS's recent efforts as nothing more than kind of PR, basically. Um, but yeah. that it's still doing the same so, things.
2: So I wanted to so on that point, I wanted to ask so um, MBS just for any listeners who don't know. Um, Mohammed bin Salman, the um, crown prince and de facto leader of Saudi, um, and also uh, the nick- nickname Bonesaw after the <laughs> grisly murder of the Saudi jour- dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul. So how have things changed at all under MBS's efforts to soften the image of the kingdom, notwithstanding the murder of Khashoggi? Um so
1: I think that the Khashoggi thing is is very important to point out because it does show that, like, whatever MBS's aspirations or credentials as a reformist are, he's not a friend of human rights, right? Like, we can't just combine all of these things together. He's definitely a proponent of economic reform, Um But I think the Khashoggi murder was like a mask off moment. And in terms of continuity, something that MBS certainly is in continuity with his predecessors is being virulently anti-Shia, uh, you know, stoking this conflict with Iran. He's called the leader of Iran worse than Hitler, so on and so forth. So like, he's definitely still a Wahhabi in that sense. What's new in what MBS is doing is that there's always been this push pull between the Saudi royal family and the Wahhabi clerical establishment. And he has tried to kneecap the establishment to a very almost unprecedented degree in terms of putting some clerics um, under house arrest or just arresting them, um, kind of issuing laws that the Wahhabi clerics would absolutely hate, like allowing women to drive. And he's really kind of asserting that the House of Saud at this point in time has much more clout inside the kingdom than these clerics do. So I think that's very, that's a very significant development under MBS. He's also, as I said, uh, trying to make Vision 20 in Vision 2030 into a thing, regardless yeah. of all the obstacles. He's definitely like uh, the Saudi ambassador in Indonesia said that all ambassadors now are ambassadors of Vision 2030. So, you know, I think to the extent that some of these cosmetic reforms lead to a few positive effects, like the new leader of the Muslim World League is one of the most progressive people that's ever been in the Dawah world. His name is Dr. Muhammad al Isa, and he's done things like acknowledge the Holocaust. Um, and you know, has gone to the Vatican and things like that. So even if those things are cosmetic, they're really big cosmetic changes. And I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and acknowledging them. I think if MBS is like pushed to change this country's image, leads them to change some of the worst um, effects of Saudi dawah worldwide, that's not a bad thing.
2: Just a quick question on meeting some of, I mean, uh, based on the book, I assume you've met them from the institutions that you visited and um, some of the elite figures that you've interacted with. Um, Presumably, I mean, you know, the Saudi royals and these elite Saudi figures who are involved in um, projecting the kingdom's kingdom's image abroad, they're all very westernized and very polished, and I presume that they, um, you know, I don't know if it's visible when you speak to them, but I mean, they must surely have some kind of double consciousness of being very kind of wealthy cosmopolitan elite figures who might turn up at Davos on the one hand, and on the other hand, being so deeply enmeshed in such a um, reactionary, religious, traditional, and conservative society and regime a Saudi. Do you ever see, do you see any of that in, um, I mean, do you, is that visible in interaction with Saudi elites when they're um, kind of uh, projecting the regime abroad?
1: Yeah, I think I think that double consciousness is is very central to to being a saudi out in the world um, and it's it's not even new like king fahad in the 80s who was one of the big dawa kings was like famously a playboy and you know had lived large and then he was one of the biggest sponsors of Dawah, and he started this quran printing complex so i wonder at some, sometimes even if those things feed into each other this desire for projecting piety in addition to projecting worldliness i wonder if it's like a kind of cycle yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but like another thing about the royal family is that there's like literally thousands of them. So it does range from (laughs) actual committed Wahhabis who truly believe in their state religion to more like cosmopolitan types who are educated abroad, which by the way, MBS was not educated abroad, which is Mm. really interesting dynamic. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, if you go to Saudi Arabia today, it's one of the most salient things in the big cities is that it's saturated with like American brands and McDonald's and Shake Shacks and things like that. So this clash between modernity and then the vast empty desert at the heart of this country is always there. And it became a country so fast, right? Like before the 1930s, the people who lived in Saudi were Bedouins, pearl fishers, merchants. It just really changed so fast that I think almost every Saudi must hold something like this in them.
3: Mm. I, this actually leads right on to the the question that i wanted to ask which is in the conclusion of your book you talk a bit about how moderate islam is is big business um and i guess i, I don't know if anybody's been watching or seen the righteous gemstones because the question uh, won't make sense if nobody's seen it why don't you tell um, Okay. Well, <laughs> well it takes quite yeah, a lot of us. explanation if now, you know then why Danny did you McBride raise is, it then <laughs> if, if if you know who Danny McBride is, then it, it it makes sense. So he basically plays the the son of this um of this preacher played by John Goodman, who's kind of making uh, Christianity into a, into a big business. But anyway, maybe I'll just reframe the question. <laughs> um, could you elaborate a little bit on when you talk about um, moderate Islam as as big business, and and people can watch the Righteous Gemstones separately.
1: Um. <laughs> I, I'm i aware of the show. I have not seen it. Um, but, yeah, I think the rise of, quote, unquote, moderate moderate Islam and counter-extremism has been very interesting, kind of like 21st century discourse. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it almost means nothing. I mean, I don't want to take it too far, but, like, what does moderate mean, right? Like, Saudi Wahhabis will use this phrase moderate or wasatiya to say that their path is moderate already. Um, it, it means almost nothing. It's like the perfect, like, war on terror word, I think, because it's like, what is it defined against? What does it stand for? Like, it, mm. it's, no one knows the answer and, to that And this. I guess also
0: like politically moderate or doctrinally mo- moderate, or, you know, I guess it, to what realm does the moderation actually apply?
1: Yeah, and it's like at these moderation conferences, you're not going to see like Shia religious leaders, right like what what does saudi moderation mean and in the last few years since vision 2030 started the saudi dawa ministry has included line items for counter extremism and moderation and things like that in their annual budgets so they're putting some dollars towards that but again no one knows what exactly that means um something really funny happened a couple years ago which is that malaysia um the prime minister malaysia there was a big counter-extremism center there funded, in Putrajaya, funded by Saudi. It was like the Saudi counter-extremism center or something like that. And he was just like, this means nothing. We're going to shut it down. We don't think Saudi Arabia is a good partner in this fight, <laughs> which I thought was very funny because like, the world has become littered with counter-extremism initiatives yeah, yeah. funded by Saudi Arabia. And CVE is a famously imprecise field, we're still not sure what best practices are. It's so case by case um, that it's been interesting to see that like one way Saudi Arabia has tried to fix its images by throwing money at the problem and creating this kind of cottage industry of counter extremism and moderation and things like that. Um, I just think these terms are so jargon um, that yeah, I really, to me personally, I can, I can be proven wrong, but I've never seen anyone enunciate a good explanation of what they do or what they mean.
2: <laughs> no, I'm sure that, I mean, you know, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's true. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm very curious about it is, um, you mentioned about the success. I mean, so some of the kind of success stories of Dawa and particularly this was really striking to me in the conclusion, you talk about the success of converting gas arbiter in Saudi. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You mentioned Chinese, so the immigrant labor, because so many of the Gulf states are built off the back of immigrant labor. But so specifically the the Chinese workers who came to build the Saudi railroad. And also um, you mentioned Filipino, so men in this case, Filipino Mm. um, immigrant labor that converted. And I'm very curious, what's the, um, if you could tell us a bit more about what is it that makes Saudi proselytization successful? Um, I have to say, I mean, maybe it's just my secular left-wing atheist Western privilege (laughs) talking, but I, I'm, you know, I struggle to imagine how a Saudi preacher would ever convince anyone. Um, so what's the appeal? And second, the second kind of the tag on question is how do you think it compares to some of the other great evangelizing religions of our time? such as Pentecostal Christianity. Um,
1: Those are all great questions. Well, with regards to the guest worker thing, that's like such an obvious dawah pool for Saudi because there's about 9 million guest workers in the kingdom and they're really the backbone of its development and infrastructure push. It's mainly Chinese workers who who built the railroad between Mecca and Medina. Um, But it was... I think one of the reasons a lot of them converted, and I really hope to do some more reporting on this once all of this blows over, is uh, peer pressure. Because people who lived in this region called the Hejaz were really furious that non-Muslims had been even allowed to come there um, to do labor there. So there was a really strong Dawah push um, and a lot of resources were mobilized. There are a lot of Chinese students studying in Saudi Arabia and Saudi students studying in China, at least a thousand both ways. So there was like a pool of people available to help on the language front. And I'm guessing that there were a lot of resources made available for them um, to make their conversion more incentivized, like, you know, free books and maybe some amenities and things like that. Um, the specifics on the ground are still a little bit unclear, but there's a lot of like mass conversion videos that you can see on YouTube that are very popular subgenre genre um, on like Saudi TV now. Um, it also, it, we're not really sure still, whether these guest workers remain Muslim when they go back to China. It's probably much more convenient to be a Muslim while you're living in Saudi Arabia as a guest worker, just for cultural Mm -hmm. reasons um, and socializing reasons. But we're not really sure yet if it sticks with them when they go back to these countries. I do know anecdotally that at least a few people like maids and domestic workers who worked abroad in Saudi from Indonesia disliked what they saw there so much that they became Shia. So it's by yeah,
0: no means
1: like yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's by no means a one-to-one correlation. But I think there's a lot of it's very incentive-based program, and I'm 100 percent sure there's there are a lot of incentives made available for them there. And I think social, you know, social life is is not a small factor when you're in kind of these really estranged conditions working abroad. Um, so, yeah.
2: They, I mean, don't they have uh, minders, you know, from the CCP? I mean, wouldn't it cause trouble for them to be um, publicly known, to be as Chinese citizens converting to Islam? Um, it made me think, I suppose, also of Falun Gong, you know, and the appeal of kind of um, religion in China as a way of expressing political dissidence or ideological non conformity with the regime itself. And I wonder if that was part of the appeal as well.
1: I'm sure that um there's so many interesting dynamics with China, Dawa, and I really recommend maybe you can put in the show notes if you do that, um the research of yeah. Muhammad Turki al-Saderi, who's a really fascinating scholar who's been working on this. But um basically, I mean, the interesting thing is that Saudi and China have a very, very solid high-level relationship. so they're they're not going to make too many problems on the on the person to-person level. And also, you know, China doesn't have, there, there, China doesn't necessarily have a problem with all Muslims, despite their horrific actions towards Uyghurs. There's a whole other kind of Muslim in China called Hui Muslims, um, who have largely been allowed to practice their religion um, across the country. So, I mean, the numbers and everything about China Dawah remains to be seen. But I think that the idea of doing Dawah on migrant workers is has been a smart move by Saudi Arabia. And it kind of shows how more like mobile and agile their apparatus is that they were able yeah. to look at this problem that people were getting kind of annoyed that non-muslims were working in the holiest region of islam and then like mobilize their resources to work on it
2: and then so just about how you think it might compare with some of the great other evangelical um growth religions of our time
1: oh yeah i think there's probably a lot of a lot of um you know, Nigeria is a great example where Pentecostalism and Salafism are both very popular. I think revivalist movements in general have been very popular kind of in, um, the late 20th century up until now. Um, part of it is the rise of mass media. I think that something that both movements have in common is like these very charismatic YouTube preachers, uh, and social media and things like that. And this, uh, kind of democratic sensibility where it's like, you don't need to do this old kind of Islamic Christianity, here's this new kind, um, mm-hmm. and and both that sometimes share this kind of prosperity gospel, where in a lot of these countries, Saudi Islam is seen as having money behind it, and and oftentimes yeah. it's true, mm-hmm. because in Nigeria, for example, the Salafis often had more money than the Sufis, um, and... And also in southern Nigeria, you know, a lot of the the charismatic Christian preachers have like private helicopters and cars and giant churches and things like that. So I think mm-hmm. the aesthetics are, are another factor that they tend to share. Oh,
2: that's really yeah. really striking. Yeah, I mean. I'm sh- yeah, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Um, so all of this was written, I mean, the book, you it's all been written before the um, oil price went into negative territory and the collapse of demand for oil um, since the COVID pandemic and the rest of it. Um, so it seems, and judging by the most recent news, um, the Saudis are um, restricting production, so avoiding their efforts to um, engage in any other kind of price gouging of their competitors. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about how um, how the oil market, as a result of the pandemic might play into the might play into dawa, how it might might play into the internal politics of saudi what it, how it affects the picture basically
1: yeah, it's it's incredibly. I mean, things are changing so fast, I can barely keep up, but it, it's definitely going to affect Dawa in the sense that there'll be less resources available. There already have been fewer resources available for Dawa since MBS came to power, according to officials within the ministry who's, you know, spoken uh, about this. So I think that'll just accelerate the trend. I think we're going to Potentially start to see some of the foreign branches of these charities get fewer or even no resources, depending on how much their revenues drop. And another side effect of this price war is that the US Saudi relationship is under unprecedented strain. Like last month, we saw Ted Cruz um, heavily criticizing Saudi Arabia for the price war, which we've never seen such, like, so many different bipartisan voices questioning the relationship. The Khashoggi affair really inflamed um, a lot of Democrats, I think, or woke them up to the human rights side of the situation. But now with the price war, it seems that a lot of people are coming out of the woodwork and being like, what exactly are we getting out of this relationship at this point? So you know, the, the thing that's really holding it together now is that Donald Trump is definitely a big fan of Saudi. It was the first place where he made a state visit. So that's holding it together for now. I'm really curious if our relationship is going to survive this period.
2: Yeah. So at the end of the book, you say that basically off the back of everything that's happened in the last part of the 20th century, the world has to effectively adjust and adapt to uh, this conservative Wahhabi Islam as part of the landscape of our century, the 21st century. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how you think that will look like. And how mm-hmm. long, how how deeply entrenched is it? Because if so much of it has come off the back of, um, you know, petrodollars and um, the money which has been spent by the Saudi regime, um, were Saudi to come under, were Saudi to c- confront Syria's social unrest or political upheaval in the future, how might that affect the global status of Wahhabi Islam?
1: Um, so, you know, not to get too much in the weeds here, but something I did write in the book is that the Saudi project has tended to create Salafis instead of Wahhabis because Wahhabism is so site-specific to Saudi. Yeah. So yeah. these transnational Salafis, I think they don't even need, in a lot of cases, any more help. They they have a lot of internet um, and global media now where they can access resources. And I also think they tend to plateau because, like, the appeal of this kind of religion, while it does have a claim to some part of the pie. It's not like it's universally appealing to adopt these really strict lifestyle practices. So I think mm. what we find, and this is so clear in Indonesia, there's gonna be a, some significant number of Salafis who find parts of this appealing, but the majority of people I don't think are gonna become hardline Salafis in, in almost any country. And I, I also think that, yeah, I mean, this is my opinion, but I think that we, that people need to take a bit of a neutral stance on this, especially in America. There's like a very prescriptivist culture and policymaking circles that like there's some idea, in my experience that all kinds of Salafism is bad or needs to be rooted out. And first of all, we're not in a position to do anything like that. Mm. Like we can't influence these countries in that way. But I, I just don't really, I don't think it's a good use of one's time. And I think even if you can accept philosophically that part of the religious revival in the world today yeah. means that there are Salafis around yeah. the world today and treat it as a kind of neutral-ish fact I think that's a very positive step for everyone's mind space
0: yeah and if we're talking about unforeseen uh, consequences like I think a lot of probably U.S. attempts have ended up uh, in sort of strange places when when trying to counter other yeah. influence so totally yeah well, I think we might uh, leave that there. That's been really fascinating. And and for listeners, the book, again, is The Call Inside the Global Saudi Religious Project. It's by Krithika Varagur, who we've just been speaking to. And it's been very interesting to talk to uh, and learn all this. The book is actually out. It's a Columbia Global Report. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we'd really urge you to check that out. If uh, if you're if you're unfamiliar with with some of what you've just heard here, there's kind of a lot more uh, detail about the organizations and about the way the Saudi uh, kind of whole project works.
1: Thanks so much Thank for you. having me. This was great. Thank you
2: very much. It's been really good.
0: If you've enjoyed this, over on our Patreon, you'll find a bonus episode in which the three of us discuss some of the themes raised here in a little bit more depth. That's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Okay, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.